0: Called Feedback. That's fun. I held it too long and I turned it off. Really? I think it's on now. There you go. All right, everybody. This is Caleb. He's my buddy. And he's going to read uh, the first chapter of Ecclesiastes for us.
1: Go ahead, bud. Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, Canaan, Jerusalem, absolute fertility. the teacher. Absolute fertility. Everyone, is futile. what does that person gain for all his efforts, like, that he wavers at under the sun, his generation goes and his generation comes. but the earth remains forever, the sun rises and the sun sets, panting it returns to the place where it rises, Gusting into the sun, turning to the moon, turning to the Oh,
0: Good job, Caleb. My oh, buddy. <clears throat> All right. You want to take this down to Pastor Frank? Good job, Bud. All right. How about Caleb up here reading that whole thing, man? I'd put money on most of the adults not to get through that. And uh, <clears throat> I think Pastor Frank said this before. We got to remember, you know, children aren't the future of the church. Children are the church, right? VBS week, what better time to say that? Um, all right, well, first of all, man, it's cool to be up here. Um, I want to thank you all for coming to church this morning, joining us here at, at Uniontown. I want to thank Frank and uh, the other pastors, the elders, just for giving me the chance to preach. And it's really cool for me. I mean, I've, I've been at Uniontown since I was seven years old, so I've been running around here for 32 years or so. And um, it's cool because, I mean, there's folks in this room that raise me. I'm looking at, at Jay Esworthy and, you know, some of the other folks. When I was a kid that were here, you know, back... Some of you all the way back in like the, the Mitch Dillon days and all, and uh, man, it's, it's just cool to be able to be up here and, you know, dig into the Word together. So, in jumping into this, I want to ask you to uh, do something with me, a little, a little out of the box, a little thought experiment. Um, I hope it's worth it. So, so picture this. It's the end of your life. Uh, a little heavy for Sunday, especially VBS Sunday, but Yeah right? Just think it, it's the end. It's your final chapter. It's your closing scene. Kind of the, you know, the, the look back. What's playing in the highlight reel of your mind? What memories are you holding on to? Thinking that that was worth it? Or, you know, realistically, what are you thinking, oh man, I wish I had a do-over on that? What aspects of your life, what, what things that you spent time on, your energy on, you know, your your resources on, are you happy with, and what things you, man, that wasn't the best way to spend my life. Now, I'll level with you, that kind of thought experiment, I do that a lot. And I don't know if this is like some weird dive into my psychology, but it might not be the cheeriest thought experiment, but I feel like it's one of the most valuable things we can do just to try and get some wisdom for life. How do I want to spend my time, my energy, my resources, all all the things God's given me? How how do I want my life to go? Now, think that through for a minute. What's your, your top five list of things that you imagine at the end of your life as you look back that you'll either be really glad you did or things you imagine, man, that could really be a regret? You don't have to say it out loud. You can if you want to share with your neighbor, you can. I'll give you a second. Think it through, though. Try and come up for you with the wisdom that God's given you. End of life. Looking back, what types of things make the list? I imagine that as we all think that through, there's probably some commonalities. Um, A possible regret I think a lot of us might cling to, like a lot of us probably identify with, is that I wish I'd spend more time with my family and less time at work. I think that probably comes to a lot of us, right? Maybe there's a passion you will wish you pursued but you didn't because you were afraid of failure. Um, I don't know, maybe some of you wish you'd taken better care of your health, or may- maybe there's somebody that you love that you never really expressed that to, or it didn't do in the way you wanted to. There'll probably be lots of stuff we're very glad of. Maybe traveling, seeing different cultures, maybe um, I imagine high on the list would be being able to be proud that we made some real difference in our community and helped others. Maybe the time that we invested in our relationships. It's hard to imagine you'd be at the end of your life and not be glad you made happy memories with your family and your friends and that kind of thing. Maybe gone out of your comfort zone. I don't know. What kinds of things resonate for you? Is it spiritual growth? you focus too much on negativity and not enough on the positive things in life? You probably have a good list. Now, That thought experiment is trying to dive us into just, I mean, that big, big life question. What's the meaning of this whole thing? What's the meaning of life? And it's something philosophers have been wrestling with for forever, but there's a book of the Bible that is about that question. You know what it is because Caleb already read it. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I guess there's two groups in the room. Some of you have studied Ecclesiastes before, some of you haven't. If you hadn't, you're thinking, okay, I guess I'll get to learn about a new book in the Bible. If you had, you're wondering, why in the world Is PJ preaching on Ecclesiastes in VBS week? It's
1: a little dark.
0: really is. It's it's a little pessimistic. The book uh, will spin you into an existential crisis faster than trying to prove that you exist in a Philosophy 101 class. But I just want to let you know that preaching on Ecclesiastes this week was Frank's idea, not mine. (laughs) So it's out of place, it's a little awkward, and it's all his fault. So... Type long emails of complaint, and they can all go to frank at utown.org. It'd be good. It really is, though, Ecclesiastes. It's one of my favorites. My wife, Katie, told me, don't say that. Every pastor always gets up, and they say that the book they're preaching, all right, it's like top ten, okay? It's top ten. It's my favorite wisdom literature book, for sure. It's so deep, and it's mysterious. Honestly, it, it just, like, it gets transparently into deep, dark questions of life to the point where when you read it, you're like, why is this even in the Bible? This is crazy. And I, I just love that. Um, now, right before we dive in, I want to give a little disclaimer. I know that there are fellow Bible nerds out there. Okay, I've got like 20 minutes. So all the things you want me to, t- I'm not going to even hint on. All right? If, if you want to lecture on like the possible Persian words in Ecclesiastes and the author's, you know, apparent familiarity with the Epic of Gilgamesh, we can do that over lunch or something. Okay, We're, this is like bird's eye. We're just going to fly over the thing. All right? So, we just want to take a quick overview of the message of the book of Ecclesiastes and see what the Lord has to teach us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do just pray for wisdom and how to live. Uh, We ask that you would use uh, your word and the preaching of it, um, that your Holy Spirit would do his work and that Jesus would be glorified. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so Ecclesiastes, you heard Caleb read it. That probably threw you for a little bit of a loop. There's no other way to put it. Ecclesiastes is dark. It can come across as really pessimistic and negative. You can read a lot of Ecclesiastes and never find any positive comment of what you're actually supposed to do. It mostly talks about what doesn't matter. Now, maybe I'm weird, but I actually find that refreshing. Because when I'm thinking about what really matters and how I've spent my life, it's not all roses and rainbows. In fact, this life, what the author of the book calls under the sun, well, sometimes it's, it just doesn't make sense. Sometimes things don't work out. Sometimes you can do everything right, and everything still goes wrong. So I've got to explain a little about the book. There's a character that speaks in the book, and he's called Kohelet. And his refrain, the thing he keeps saying, is meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And we also what? Is this in the Bible? Yeah, it's in the Bible. Okay. Uh, So who is this Kohelet that is in the Bible telling us that everything is meaningless? Well, in some sense, he's King Solomon, the third king of Israel. And I say in some sense, we're going to get nerdy for just a minute, all right? Because scholars don't really know who wrote the book. If it's Solomon himself, maybe he wrote part of the book. Uh, Maybe somebody's just writing from his perspective. Now there's a number of clues in the text that let us know that this Kohelet character is supposed to be Solomon. The biggest one is that he says he's king in Jerusalem, over Israel in Jerusalem. Well, there's only two kings that were ever king over Israel in Jerusalem. David was the one that made Jerusalem the capital. His son Solomon ruled in Jerusalem over Israel. And Solomon jacked it all up so bad that by the time he died they had a civil war, everything split up. The northern kingdom was called Israel. Their capital is called Samaria, so all the kings of Israel ruled in Samaria, not Jerusalem. So Solomon's kind of the only guy who fits. And then, a little while later, he brags about magnifying and increasing wisdom over all that came in Jerusalem before him. Well, that's just David. So then you think, well, that can't be Solomon, right? It's got to be somebody else who came later, maybe after Solomon. Um, And then, you know, the character through the book, he definitely talks like Solomon, Uh, in, in terms of his wealth, his building projects, and things like that. So then the authorship, like who wrote Ecclesiastes, gets weirder, because Kohelet is just one character in the book that speaks. There's also kind of this narrator character that opens the book up, and then at the end kind of closes it. I call the narrator character the handler, because Kohelet's a little crazy to hear from, like, He's a little dark and it's hard to understand what what he's going for and how this is a Bible book. So there's almost like another voice that introduces you to him like, okay, I've got this crazy friend that's going to tell you some stuff. Here he is. And he lets him talk and at the end he comes in. Okay, let me kind of unpack that for you. Uh, So we have this handler character uh, that steps in as well. And we don't know. It it could be Solomon wrote the whole thing, and this is a rhetorical device that he's using. It could be that some later editor took this really difficult writing from Solomon and wrote an intro and conclusion to it to make it work. Or it could be somebody wrote from Solomon's perspective we don't know. And all the scholars think they have it figured out, and none of them agree. So the good news is the wisdom from the book comes through no matter who wrote it, so we don't have to get too tied up in it. All right, so Caleb read that first chapter for us. And it gives us a little bit of a feel for what Kohelet's teaching is like. Uh, If you look at that poem, especially um, or the the opening, the main thrust of his teaching is in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. A lot of your translations probably say meaningless. And then for preacher, it might say teacher. And then Kohelet goes on to explain how everything seems cyclical in this life under the sun. He, he talks about the sun. It comes up, and then what does it do? It goes across the sky and goes down again. And guess what it does the next day? It's over there again. And it goes over. And then it's back over there. Is it accomplishing anything? It just goes in circles all the time. And he says, most of life under the sun seems to be this way, way futile. Meaning, like, what, what's the point of the sun just spinning around forever and ever and ever and ever? The wind blows north, it blows south. It blows north, it blows south. It never gets anywhere. The water... It just keeps flowing into the sea. And the seas are never like, fool, what happened? Where's it all going? And then it's up at the top of the mountain running back to the sea again. What's the point? So that whole poem in uh, 3 through 11, it's just kind of pointing out Kohelet's view of this life. What is the point? This book ends up being a wild, wild journey in wisdom. We have this character, Kohelet. Now that word, means the one who assembles, and that's the one that your translations uh, have as preacher or teacher. Uh, I just like to use that as as his name. I think it's easier. Uh, Preacher I don't like as much because this isn't like a church setting that Kohelet's teaching. This is just wisdom that he wrote out in a book. Uh, Teacher makes a a little more sense. I like that translation a little bit better, Um, but it's definitely Solomon's perspective. So let's think about this character from Solomon's perspective. Solomon had this incredible life, right? If you know his story, he was given great wisdom from God and great riches from God. He's basically a Bible character that got to do whatever he wanted with his life. Just, right, checkbook, whatever you want. And he did all kinds of things. Solomon did unimaginable things. And then Kohelet uses this phrase, under the sun, a lot. And he means everything in this life. What you do, how the world works, everything from our human perspective is under the sun. So, how did Solomon's under the sun go? It's tragic. Even with great wisdom, Solomon is characterized by a failure to follow the Lord. He knew better than anyone what to do and chose not to do it. So the perspective we're reading here is old Solomon, who's really down about life. What he speaks is truth, but it's from a pretty dark perspective. He's looking back on a life lived with great potential, and his basic conclusion is that in his pursuit of meaning, he hasn't found it. He calls everything he's tried to do in order to find fulfillment and meaning, hevel. Now, our English translations try and do something with the word hevel. And they'll translate it things like uh, meaninglessness, vanity, futility, even uh, perfectly pointless. I think it's best to adopt the Hebrew word hevel and just try and learn what it means. So in a very literal sense, hevel means smoke, or vapor, or mist. Now, I promise I'm not trying to offer strange fire before the Lord here. Just get some smoke going. So we can try and picture this word hevel. It's a metaphorical word, because when we have smoke in front of us, it's real. It's really there. You can see it, you can smell it, especially from my little incense up here, you can definitely smell it. But as I look at the smoke, and I go to grab it, there's just nothing in my hand. What a waste. It looks real. I can see it, I know it's real, but I just can't get anything tangible from it. There's, in the end, nothing there. It's hevel. So, meaningless isn't a bad translation. Um, Futility, it's futile. You're grabbing and you're not getting anything, right? But, uh, But this word hevel, Um, the author of this book really, really runs with. I I encourage you, just just learn it, and every time you see your translation's version of meaningless or futile or perfectly pointless, just go with Hevel. Now, when we think about what the author's doing with this, my my buddy Kirsten Cook, who's a regular Bible scholar in her own right, she reminded me a few weeks ago that Abel, from the Cain and Abel story, his name is linguistically tied to this word Hevel. So there's, you can use his life almost as an illustration of, of what this metaphor means. Think about Abel. If you know that story, did, did he do stuff wrong? No, he was the good guy. He did all the right stuff. Well, how did it work out for him? Try and Think about the Cain and Abel story from Abel's perspective. Man, I gave the right sacrifice. I lived my life for God. And then my brother just kills me in the field. Hevel. Right? There's futility there. So In the context of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet is saying that he's tried all the things and everything is a puff of smoke, a chasing after the wind. And pursuing meaning through all the stuff he could find in life has left him bitter, left him empty, and in all his vast life experience, pretty much all he's found out is that things don't work the way they should work. The world's broken. He sees people doing the right thing and getting bad results, and then he sees... That, this whole black-and-white wisdom from Proverbs where you do this and this happens, it just doesn't always happen that way. There's a, there's a glitch in the system. Something's broken in the universe. I oh, know, really uplifting message for VBS week, right? I promise we'll get there. Keep with me. So you remember your list from your earlier thought experiment. The things at the end that you thought, yeah, that's stuff. That'll be the meaningful stuff. And I don't I want to avoid that because that's not really the meaningful stuff. Well, As you think that through now, I mean, what kinds of things do you think are really going to be valuable at the end of your life? Let's look at some of the stuff that Kohelet tried. All right, first thing, Caleb read this for us. He tried wisdom. He tried to learn everything he could about life. And his conclusion is in chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. He says, I've magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. My mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I realized... This is striving after the wind. In much wisdom, there's much grief, and increasing knowledge results increasing pain. Trying to find meaning here ended in meaninglessness, in Hell. and I can relate. I've been in school my whole life, and I love learning. It, it would be easy to start to build an identity around learning and wisdom. In fact, it's been a real temptation for me. I, I distinctly remember the letdown I I felt when I finished my doctorate. The journey was over, the five years of a lifestyle of reading and writing and worrying about my dissertation, and it suddenly came to an end. And uh, and I realized that I had kind of started to make that a part of my identity. I was trying to find meaning in being educated. And I can't imagine that on my deathbed, I'm going to look back and say, you know, I wish I earned one more degree. Got one more paper for the wall. Filled my head with a little more knowledge. Now, the author does come back around in chapter 2, and he, he, he points out that wisdom is better than foolishness. It's not pointless. But it's not enough to provide meaning for your life. So what else does he try? How about having fun? Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was Hevel. Nothing. I said of laughter, it's senseless. And of pleasure, what does this accomplish? Now, before we dive in, that is absolute biblical evidence that you have to take the live, uh, the, the live, laugh, love sign that you got at Hobby Lobby. That needs to come down. He says laughter's a no-go. But my man Solomon, I mean, he was living it up. He tried building vacation homes and gardens. He tried gathering gold and silver and servants and his own music groups and, in in his own words, many concubines. My man was just living it. He was rolling from his house in Malibu to his estate on the French Riviera on his super yacht with a host of crew to pamper him. He even hired Taylor Swift and Bruno Mars and Adele to put on private concerts on his private island where his private jet could land on the private airstrip. Well, I made all that up, but you get the idea, right? And his conclusion, chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not restrain my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for my labor. So I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, it was heaven. It was striving after wind. There was no benefit under the sun. Having fun is no way to have a meaningful life. Now, most of us kind of have that knowledge intuitively, but aren't we still tempted to seek pleasure as if it's going to make things right, it's going to fill that void? And half the time, we just seek it to get a little shot of Novocaine, maybe not to have life hurt so bad. Well, after wisdom, after pleasure, he tries work with the same result. I think work is one that a lot of us can relate to. When I think about who I am, what I am, what I do that's meaningful, my work as a school principal really stands near the top. I really believe that it matters. And if you like your job, you probably think that your job matters too. But not only are we all dealing with our own careers, our own work, but then we're steeped in an American Protestant hard work matters mindset. We're just brought up with it. Most of us just have a cultural bias that working hard is intrinsically valuable. Kohelet points out the futility of working hard only to pass your work on to another generation that might be foolish and doesn't even appreciate it. He says in chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, for what does a person get in all his labor and in striving with, with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his activity is painful and irritating. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is futility. And some of us that work more than 40 hours a week and really get after it all the time, we know what he's talking about. There's something empty there at the end. You've been taught that working hard is an intrinsic value all by itself. It's going to add meaning to life. But if you just keep working yourself to the bone, there's nothing in your hand. It's not adding meaning to life. After this, he circles back to pleasure. And he actually makes a point that is a little controversial. I call them the Carpe diem passages. He says in uh, verse 24, chapter 2, 24, there's nothing better for a person to do than to eat, drink, and show himself some good in his trouble. This too I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. So he's not ready to throw out pleasure or work or anything entirely. In fact, he's at least willing to say that it is good to enjoy God's good gifts. And he repeats this several, you can find all these passages throughout, five or six times he stops to tell you, hey, live it up a little bit, enjoy life. Uh, and some scholars think that the handler at the end like dismisses that conclusion. I don't read it that way. Um, Tremper Longman III is an awesome Old Testament scholar. He, he takes it that way. He thinks that the handler at the end says, "You know, forget that carpe diem stuff. Um, I think at the end, the handler actually agrees that Kohelet is right. But man, as he introduces this book in the, in the end, we'll look at it. He introduces the book, this book to his son. He does not want his son stuck in this Kohelet mindset of life. Even though, yeah, there's some truth to some enjoy life attitude. Now, we're not going to be able to go through the whole book in every little detail, so I'm going to speed through some here. But Kohelet comes to the conclusion that it is just absolutely absurd that according to like the book of Proverbs, black and white, traditional wisdom of his day, that things like oppression and injustice even exist in this world. How is that a thing? How pointless is it that governments oppress their people? Bureaucracies rob the the poor of justice. He goes on about the fruitlessness of money, especially hoarding money and the love of money. How crazy it is that some people, God gives them wealth, he gives them freedom, and they can't even enjoy it. And then there's good people who would enjoy it that God doesn't give any of the wealth and the freedom to. Hevel. He decries moralism, striving to earn meaning with righteousness and pious living. He reminds the readers that youth is fleeting, don't try and be fulfilled with health and fitness. Nobody on their deathbed is going to be, I wish I got a little few more gains in the gym or went from one more run or lost 10 more pounds before you went to the beach. That's really not going to be on your mind, right? Now, I know this is an exhaustive study. I told you we're just flying through this thing. But you get the idea. Kohelet looked at all the wisdom of his culture and his time and said, this is the stuff that everybody around me and I've been brought up to believe is meaningful and all of it is a striving after the wind. There's nothing tangible in my hand at the end of it. This is where the list gets a little weird, because from our cultural perspective today, there's stuff that's not in the list that I kind of think should be, right? I know my list, when I do that thought experiment, is a little different than his. Like, my relationship with my wife is going to be high up on there. Spending time with my kids, he doesn't really mention that. He mentions relationships some, but not kind of the way I would. Um, What about doing good for the others around you, improving your community? Uh, What about church work? Ministry for the kingdom of God, those types of things. We have to get a little speculative. But if in his logic, everything his culture said was meaningful ended up being a puff of smoke, nothing to grab in the end, it follows that, guys, everything our culture thinks is meaningful. There's nothing to it. That's not going to provide the meaning in life, the purpose in life that we're called to. Take all the 21st century American evangelical Christian ideals that's in your brain, and add them to the list as a puff of smoke. So, it keeps getting better, doesn't it? Now we've established that everything's meaningless, nothing matters, there's no point to anything that I've always found important. So have fun, try not to be miserable, and thanks for coming this morning. No, if I stop there, definitely shouldn't make me an elder and don't let me preach again. Uh, There's a (laughs) punchline at the end of this book that's absolutely crucial. Right before we get into the punchline, though, there's something else I want to point out that Kohelet was really, really, really careful to do, okay? He maintained this throughout his entire writing, chapter 1 through uh, through the beginning of 12. He only calls, as far as I read through it a billion times looking for this, five things evil. He calls a fool wasting the hard work of another person evil. He calls approaching God without reverence evil. He calls hoarding wealth evil. He calls death evil evil. And he says when there's somebody that just can't enjoy their life, that's evil. But otherwise, he never says that learning, work, wisdom, pleasure, building, legacy, youth, or any one of God's good gifts are bad. Only that they are not going to bring meaning to life under the sun. They are not going to transcend time and the futility and brevity of this broken world. And you can add all your ideas. Spending time with family, making happy memories, leaving something to my children, taking time for vacations, your hobbies, your resting, your working, whatever. That stuff isn't bad. I'd actually argue it's really good. And real desires that are put in our hearts by God, that when approached with wisdom, can have meaning. But the, the, and, the, and there's a reason that you desire fun and you desire money and you desire relationships, maybe a spouse, maybe children. These are God's good gifts. The problem is that we want to make those things God. So what's this punchline I'm talking about? Flip to the end of the book, chapter 12. And after the handler steps in, in verse 9, and says, the preacher's a wise man, Kohelet's a wise man, he taught the people, he pondered, he searched out, sought to light the words of the wise. And in verse 12 you see, that he's actually, the, the, the handler character is like introducing crazy Kohelet to his son. And he says, beyond this, my son, be warned the writing of many books is endless. Executive, excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. Amen. Verse 13, the conclusion when everything has been heard is fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, Everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. So the punchline is that only one thing adds any real meaning and purpose to this life with tangible, lasting value fear God, have a right relationship with God, keep His commandments, what we call sanctification or holiness and live in light of the coming judgment of God. Now, I think in that three-part, here's what it's about. Uh, there's this cool parallel with the Pentateuch, the writings, the prophets, and the big rabbit trail I'm not going to get into because I don't have time. But let's try one more mental exercise, okay? Think of your top two or three fears. Now, if you came up with clowns and balloons, we'll have to do a little psychology to get you there, okay? There's probably something about control in it, but what are they? I know that I, I mean, if, I'm, if I really do a heart search on my greatest fears, I fear losing family. I fear pain. I fear losing all financial security. And then some stuff that might sound a little trivial. It's not to me. <laughs> I fear not being able to boat or fish or ride motorcycles or play the guitar or, you know, the stuff I love to do. Like, if that was taken, I I really fear some of that stuff being taken. Like, I'm afraid I'm going to hurt my left hand doing something and then not be able to play the guitar. Like, that's a real fear. And I I don't know what what you really fear, um, but the point of that exercise is the things that we fear might just be our idols. There's a reason that the Bible tells us to fear the Lord and nothing else. I'm not really supposed to fear hurting my left hand and not being able to play the guitar. I really shouldn't fear losing my financial security. I really shouldn't fear losing family members. And when those are my fears above God, those are my idols. The things that we're seeking for meaning in life instead of the fear of the Lord. They might just be the things that we're building an idolatrous identity around. And they're probably not bad. I mean, you might have come up with something that's bad, but probably not. They're probably God's good gifts. But they will not add real, tangible meaning to life. These things are only imbued with tangible, lasting meaning when they are above the sun, when they're done in obedience and fear to the Lord. I find this an immensely convicting punchline because I I love my wife. I love my family. In a different sense, I love my job. I love my home, and my boat, and my country, and my guitars, and my motorcycles, and it gets less and less love, but you get the idea, right? I love this stuff. And it's easy for me to start to make make an identity out of wisdom, or learning, or wealth, or status, or work, or whatever, but I know, and Kohelet has taught me, that I will end up regretting putting my all into anything but obeying and fearing God. There are validations for those desires. They are good gifts given to you by God. Approach them with wisdom. But I can make my life about the gifts instead of about the gift giver. Now, before I wrap this up, we've got to meditate on this message a little bit from the perspective of Jesus, because this is an Old Testament book, and Jesus changes things. So, uh, luckily for us, the New Testament has already done a lot of the heavy lifting for us, so I invite you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul actually makes a really strong allusion to this Old Testament book. If we start in verse 18, will work. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that sounds like Ecclesiastes, boy, this under the sun stuff is painful. They're not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says, Under the sun, the pain, the struggles, the toil, the futility, Under the sun has got nothing on over the sun. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And this is where he makes sure we know he's tying it into Ecclesiastes. For the creation was subjected to, he uses the Greek word for heaven. The same way they translated that word heaven into Greek, he uses right there in verse 20 for the creation was subject to heaven, Not willingly, but because of him who, subject, who, subject, who subjected it. And then he goes on, and he says, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but we are, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. For in hope we've been saved. But hope that is seen isn't not a hope. Who, who hopes for what he already sees? But we hope for what we do not see. Through perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. So, Paul recognizes that Kohelet is right. Under the sun, it doesn't make sense. It's painful. There's no activity I can do. There's no thing I can do. Nothing I can accomplish. Nothing I can do with my time that's going to give my life purpose. It's good to enjoy God's good gifts, but we take even that and we either use it as a shot of Novocaine, a distraction from the pain of the world, or we start to make those things our idols instead of worshiping God himself. But we... Are not left without hope, because Jesus Christ, God Himself, stepped under the sun, took on our perspective. He defeated heaven. He won the victory over sin, over death, over the devil. This is what uh, this is what Ephesians uh, Philippians chapter two, uh, five through eleven is about. It's about the incarnation of Jesus, where. He already existed in the form of God, verse 6, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. He stepped under the sun, took on our under the sun perspective, and took the hevel head on. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then it goes on to say, that for this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The futility of under the sun still exists. We're in the middle of it. But our hope is in a right relationship with God and obedience to his commands and living in light of a future judgment and that it is not in vain. Because Jesus stepped into the mess, he conquered the hell. He brought purpose and meaning to an otherwise purposeless and meaningless life. So this morning, if you're searching, if you're searching for meaning, if life seems empty, if life seems void of meaning, you are in good company. There is nothing you're going to do that's going to fill that void, that's going to put purpose and meaning in your life outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ but praise God that relationship with Jesus Christ he has won the victory he's taken your place in death he has secured you in the position of utmost meaning and fulfillment if you find yourself yearning for that right relationship with God or you just find yourself empty and you need something that's meaningful Guys, when we close up here, there's going to be some church leaders back in the prayer corner that would love just to join in with you in that journey. Try and show you where that meaning is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Because at the end of Romans chapter 8 that we started in, Paul absolutely trashes the idea that it's futility under the sun. and, And he does it in the name of Jesus. I'll close with this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? and then went over the sun, and he's there interceding for us, giving us meaning in life. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. God, we do just pray for the wisdom to live our lives with our identity firmly established in our relationship with you. Lord, help us to see what our idols are, to forsake them, and to give you our everything. Lord, help us to find our meaning, our purpose and our identity solely in a right relationship with you, obedience to your commands, and the sure hope of a future where you
1: make our faith sight. Amen.